Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean, and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. Now I'd like to encourage you to turn with me in your Bibles, if you have them, to two places in Scripture and just mark your place and we're going to make our way there. The first is Luke chapter 4 and the other is Romans chapter 8. So if you find your way to Luke chapter 4 and Romans chapter 8, you will be ready when we arrive at those places in this journey that we take now for the remainder of our time. Today is the third of six studies that we are committed to pursuing in this new sermon series called Losing My Religion. We're paying very close attention to the reality that for many years and decades, many are walking away from church and from organized religion in general, which I've been meaning to say the last couple of weeks is is an oxymoron in terms There's nothing organized about religion, is there, Monty? But we're walking away so many in droves from organized religion. And there are those who study us, who have created landmark studies of reliable data that say something about why, about why so many are leaving so many places of worship or so many expressions of their religious faith. And while one group will have these top six reasons and another have maybe these top six reasons and they are echoed in other studies, there is an overlapping, a kind of, a kind of repetition or redundancy because we're beginning to see patterns emerge of themes, themes of why people are walking away. This is what they're telling us. And, and the purpose of this study And the purpose of this sermon series is I am attempting because God has laid it on my heart to attempt to synthesize many of these reasons why people are walking away so that we might be able to learn something about it and respond because there is embedded with all these very disturbing reasons they are leaving, there is embedded an immense hope. I have an immense hope because among the data that is emerging in these studies is the reality that while people may be walking away in droves from religion, they're not necessarily walking away from faith. That there is still within the human being a God-given hunger, a thirst, a craving for transcendence, for an encounter with the holy for spiritual meaning and fulfillment and inspiration and transformation and redemption and wholeness, there's still a deep drive to be a part of a community of belonging where wounds can be healed and meaning can be found. And and, and I want you to keep thinking about somebody in your life during the series who for whatever reason may have walked away from faith. I promise you they have not walked away from all that drives their heart and their soul toward meaning. 
because God put it there. And I believe if we somehow become stewards of the information that we're learning and we are humble enough to become students, we might learn something that we can do to react and respond to what we're seeing happen. So the point of this series is to hold up the data and all that we are learning right alongside sacred scripture and in a posture of humility, ask God, what what must we do? What must change? Where must we repent in the New Testament sense of the word? Change, change our minds so that for the sake of the gospel, the world may know that your love has come. And each week I've been attempting to focus on a particular data point or two. Last week we talked about how it's being revealed that the young in America, the teenagers, young adults are expressing to us the reason they are leaving is multiple. There, there's a myriad of reasons, but last week we focused on a couple, that the church just seems too simplistic for the complexities of the life that we are living. That the church has at times been so overprotective and so suspicious of everything outside these doors and it doesn't make sense to the young who recognize outside these doors there is great beauty and mystery and, and, something, and something so compelling in the world out there. Why, why would the church be so overprotective to keep us from that world? And last week we talked about what it means to return to the risk of following Christ, to boldly go to places that will cost us something because what the young are looking for is not to be entertained, not to be placated, but to be inspired and compelled to a life that means something. Today, I want us to focus on another reason that we're learning. Some have said as they walk away, we're leaving because in our experience, the church seems so often to be supporting things that don't make sense for the church to support. And, and at other times, the, the church seems to be, well, resisting things that in my conscience I just feel is, is the right thing. And, and in conversations that we have, that I've had with people, and maybe you too, it doesn't make sense to me why the church is always anti this and anti that. And their experience, whether right or wrong, whether true or untrue, their experience is, yeah, the church is just, it's always, it's anti-science, it's anti-LGBTQ inclusion, it's anti-intellectualism, it's anti-everything that's important to me, and it's always pro-something else. It's pro-politics, pro-partisanship, pro-political candidates, pro-platforms that seem to be in contradiction with the teachings of Jesus, and so I'm walking away because it seems like the church is always for things they ought to be against and they are against things they ought to be for. So today I just wanna to talk for a few moments about when my religion is for and against the wrong things. When my religion is for and against the wrong things. And I wanna help you out here by giving you the punchline of my sermon, all right? That means I'm gonna give you the bottom line up on top so after I tell you the punchline, you're free to go. Not really, I, don't, I hope you don't. I've got some things to say, but here's the whole thing in a nutshell. Are you ready? We are only licensed to be for and against that which Jesus was for and against. 
That's it. I mean, it, I wish I could make it more complex than that for you. I wish there could be a song and dance that makes it even more messy than that, but it's really not. We are only licensed if we bear the name Christian. We are only licensed to be for and against that which Jesus was for and against. Nothing more, nothing less, nothing other than what he was. We are here to advance his agenda only. That's it. One banner, one banner, and it says Jesus across the top. That's it. Truth is, there have been times over the long history of the church when we have gotten it right, when we, we did well, we've gotten it right. But way too often there have been seasons when we didn't and we blew it. And I just want to talk about that for just a few moments, because if we don't learn to address what we're talking about as critical lovers and loving critics of the thing that we hold so dear, then we'll continue to live in an echo chamber of our own opinions and start blaming the world around us for not wanting to be a part of us. But with courage, if we could pay close attention, we might be part of the solution. So, if it's true that we are only licensed to be for and against that which Jesus is for and against, maybe the first question is, well, what was that? What was Jesus for and what was Jesus against? And simply put, it is this, Jesus was for people. Jesus was for people. When he had the opportunity to give his inaugural sermon at his home church, his home synagogue in Nazareth, they handed him the scroll of Isaiah and he could have turned anywhere. It's the biggest scroll we have or one of the top three big scrolls in the Hebrew Bible. He turned and turned and found deliberately one place that seemed to summarize what he was for. One place that seemed in one sermon to declare why he had come. It's in Luke chapter 4. Beginning in verse 18, we hear these words. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Good news to the poor, to the literal poor who have nothing and who are on the edges of the consciousness of society. They've been forgotten, left alone, but also not just the literal poor, those who think that we are rich in spirit, but are truly paupers to bring good news to those who are poor in spirit too. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, not just truly the captives, literally the captives, political captives, criminally captive, but also those who are captive in mind and heart to that which incarcerates us from living freely, that which torments the mind, that which torments the heart where we cannot live as if we were made in the image of God in this world. I've come to set the captives free and recovery of sight to the blind, the literal blind, yes, but to those who think they are sighted, but are walking in darkness. To let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What does it mean to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor? Jesus says, it means I have come to let you know that God is for you that God is for you. Despite all of the experiences that shove you to the edges, the margin of society where you feel forgotten and you feel maybe it's because of something you did or something you said, or maybe just the way you're wired, you are somehow on the edges of society. I have come 
to tell you that those of you who are feeling on the margin of society, you are at the very center of the consciousness of God. God is for you. That's why I've come. And if you were to read in John 10, 10, you'd hear him say, I came that they might have life and have it to the fullest, that that I am for life, I am for aliveness. I am for you waking up in the morning and realizing there's a reason. I am for you being truly alive. That's what I'm for. I'm for you. Or we could read John 3, 16, couldn't we? What we memorize as children, for God so loved the world that God gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Truth is, you and I know this one, but it's very familiar. And, it, and then we usually we stop there. We kind of park the car at 316 right there. And we get out of the car and lock the keys inside it and walk away because that says everything. God is for the world. God is for the world. But you know where the real magic is, right? It's in verse 17. Verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, to, to, to be against the world, but that through him, the world might be saved. If you were to ask me, what was Jesus for? I, I tell you, the, the answer is, is, is obnoxiously simple. He was for people. For people to be whole and healed and at peace with God and one another and at peace with themselves. God was for you. Christ came in the person of Jesus to be for you. And I don't know if you came this morning, and, and maybe you've been living in such a way that you, you have not heard that message just clearly spelled out to you. And we sometimes we overcomplicate the simple in the church. And maybe you came today just to hear that word, Jesus is for you. God is not angry with you. God loves you. And wants you whole. And if that's what Jesus is for, well, then what was Jesus against? Well, he's against anything that undermines what he's for. He's against any power or principality that stands in the way of someone truly being free, truly being connected with God and with community, anything that stands in the way. In fact, can I just tell you that Jesus is so for us that he's even for the ones who are against him. And they're from the cross, dripping from those lips divine. Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. He is so for people that he's even for the ones who were against him. They were going through Samaria one day. And he was sending his disciples through Samaria with a message of good news. And they were being rejected. Right? And the disciples were upset about being rejected. And, and it, it makes sense, really, because the Samaritans had been kind of walked on by Jews for a long time. They were kind of a mixed race and looked down upon for a long time. And so they naturally would be defensive toward any kind of good news that we've come to share. So they rejected him and they rejected their message. So they come to Jesus one day. It's a great passage in the gospel of Luke. They say, hey, master, um, they've rejected us. Do you want us to like call fire down from heaven and consume them? And Jesus is like, yeah, no, let's, no, let's not do that. Okay. He's even against, he's even for those who are against him is what I'm getting. 
And you can look in your scriptures and I can promise you, you will not find anywhere in scripture, not one place, where Jesus is ever against a sinner. No matter what the sin is, no matter how it's described or defined, Jesus is never against a sinner, right? In fact, the only person he's really ever against seems to be the guy in my job. Seriously, on your job too, so watch out. He's only against that which is against what he's for. And if the religious institutions and systems of the day, then or now, stand as an obstacle to setting people free and create loops and hoops for them to jump through and create barriers for people to come to faith and to know God and to be a part of worship and a part of a community of believers, if anything, including religion, stands in the way, Jesus is against that. He even rails against the Pharisees and scribes in in Luke. He he has this long series of woes. Like, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. You're like whitewashed tombs. You're like, you look so beautiful on the outside, but on the inside, you're dead. Woe to you for this and woe to you for that. And I know we kind of read it that way, like woe as in shame on you. But I like to read it as like a woe, you know, it's like, like woe with all the shaming. It's like, woe with all the condemning and woe with all of your judgmentalism, woe with it, right? He tells this one story where these two guys go to, to the temple to pray and, and one of them is a sinner and, and a tax collector, right? And one of them, which is code for sinner. It's code for sinner, <laughs> not today, but you know. And the other is a Pharisee, a religious leader. And we pick up the story here. To some who are confident in their own righteousness and look down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I I give a tenth of all that I have. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He wouldn't even look up to heaven, but he would beat his breast and he said, God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and all those who humble themselves will be exalted. What is Jesus for? Jesus is for the humble. Those who actually believe that they are nothing. I'm just a sinner. And Jesus is against the pride that would look down upon the humble. Yeah, yeah. You know what Jesus was for? Jesus was for exposing whatever within religion stands as a barrier between people and faith. 
Remember, two weeks ago, I said that religion at the heart of it is the word religio, which means uh, like to re-ligament. At the core of it, it's the same core as ligament. So religion is to re-ligament that which is separated and broken. But religion sometimes does more to separate than to bind back together. Jesus is for removing the obstacles for broken people to be able to be put back together again. Another way to say it is he's against the lie of separation, that there are some of us who are clean and some of us who are unclean. Man, I am clean and unclean at the same time most days. The lie of separation is that you have to jump through these hoops and overcome these obstacles, especially if those obstacles are placed there by religious systems. Jesus is for people and against what gets in the way Because what in the world can separate us from the God who loves us and made us? This is what compelled the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8 in verse 31 to say, what then are we to say about these things? If God is, say that word for me, for us, who can be against us? He who did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for all of us, will he not? with him also give us everything else? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Oh, this is good. It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? It is Christ, Jesus, who died, yes, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God and indeed intercedes for us. Do you realize the power of that statement? Who can condemn? Well, Jesus, he can. He's the only one who can, can, he is qualified to condemn. But guess what he chooses to do instead? He intercedes for us when he could condemn us. It goes on and Paul, Paul says, it was Christ Jesus, yes, who died, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, indeed intercedes for us, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship or distress or, or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or the sword, as it's written, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We're like sheep accounted like sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The thing that Jesus was for was for people to understand how deep the Father's love is for us. And we are only mandated, only licensed to be for and against that which Jesus was for and against. Sometimes we get it right and sometimes we get it wrong. You know, in the very beginning, we did this well. We really did. In the beginning, we got it right. Do you realize that in the first 300 years of church history, when we were a movement of people who were following in the way of Jesus, do you know there was one thing we were known for? We were not known for our programs. We were not known for our cathedrals. They had not been built yet. We were known for one thing. We were known for one thing, the radical, fearless, (laughs) 
unconditional love of neighbor. You've got to let that sink in for a moment, beloved. We weren't known for anything else other than the radical, fearless, unconditional love of neighbor. Our first mothers and fathers in the faith were so transformed by the power of God's love in Jesus, the resurrected one, that it radically changed everything about what it meant to be alive. It wasn't doctrine that they were worried about. It wasn't, it wasn't theology they were working out in those early days. What it was, was I am so different now. I see myself differently. I see God differently. I see you. I see even my, my enemies differently now. And they believed, they believed that they were now the conduits of divine love on earth that the divine love which was in Christ was flowing through them to the world around them, to their neighbors. They were literally the living, breathing, visible image of the risen Christ in the world. And this is what led historian Diana Butler Bass to say that is what made Christianity irresistible. Irresistible. Not the impressiveness with which we organize our programs and, and our strategic initiatives and our glorious uh, facilities. No, what was so irresistible in the early days was a love that transformed people. And that love was so compelling that during the great plague of Galen, which is in the second century, about 165 to 180, a plague that killed hundreds of thousands of people in the streets. Well, hundreds and thousands were leaving cities and leaving towns and villages in order to survive. But guess who didn't leave? The Christians who stayed behind to care for the suffering and the dying. In her book, this is how she describes it. Because they didn't fear death, Christians stayed behind in plague-ravaged cities while, while go back. I'm not as fast reader as I thought I was. Because they didn't fear death, Christians stayed behind in plague-ravaged cities while others fled. Their acts of mercy extended, watch, to all the suffering regardless of class, tribe, or religion and created the conditions in which others accepted their faith. Our faith exploded with growth because of love of neighbor. Imagine that. They took the risk of loving and Christianity grew because it took a risk on love. What would your life look like today if, if you were to take a risk on love? What would a church look like if we were able to take a risk on love? This is what led the fourth century golden-tongued preacher uh, John Chrysostom to describe Christianity in the early days this way. This is the rule of most perfect Christianity, its most exact definition, its highest point, namely, the seeking of the common good. For nothing can so make a person an imitator of Christ as caring for his neighbors. You know, there was a second century critic of Christianity uh, his, his name was Lucian. He was an orator and a critic of our, of our faith in the early days. But you know what he observed? This is what he said. The efficiency 
the Christians show whenever matters of community interests like this happen is unbelievable. They literally spare nothing. We baffled the world with the degree to which we loved. And there was a traveler, an ancient traveler, who would chronicle all of his trips, all of his pilgrimages. His name was Rufinus. He's traveling through and he comes across a desert where there's a, there's a community of Christians, new, new still, early in our, in our history. And his encounter with them caused him to write these words. Then we came to Natria, the best known of all the monasteries of Egypt, about 40 miles from Alexandria. As we drew near to that place and they realized that foreign brethren were arriving, they poured out of their cells like a swarm of bees and ran to meet us with delight and alacrity, many of them carrying containers of water and bread. When they had welcomed us, first of all, they led us with psalms into the church and washed our feet, and one by one they dried them with the linen cloth they were girded with, as if to wash away the fatigue of the journey. What can I say that would do justice to their humanity, their courtesy, and their love? Nowhere have I seen love flourish so greatly, nowhere with such quick compassion, such eager hospitality. That's what we did. I want you to hang on to the image of the church swarming out of their homes and their church like a, like a swarm of bees out of the hive to welcome them. And I just want you in this moment to think of somebody you know who left church because they weren't welcome. I don't care what the reason is. I mean, I, think of somebody you know, and you know them, I do too. Think of someone, maybe they are someone who were maybe offended because they didn't feel welcome because maybe they, maybe they vote differently than you. Maybe their sexual orientation is different than yours. Maybe they talk about their gender in ways that are different than you and that maybe confuse you and you don't understand and maybe even it frustrates you too. Now hold that image in your mind for a moment. And I want you to remember we are licensed to be for and against only that which Jesus was for and against. I want you to imagine them right now in your mind, people who have been told or experienced that I am not welcome in that place. And I want you to imagine what would happen if they saw us like a swarm of bees coming out of this place, not to sting them, but to envelop them in transformational love where we don't worry about how fast or how slow God is working on them. But we worry about, will I be found faithful in being for that which he was for? Can you imagine the transformation that would happen, not just in them, but in us? And in a, in a swarm of mutual transformation, will that not look more like the kingdom of God Remember a couple of months ago in my sermon series, Table Manners, I said, hey, we, we get to come around this table and eat this supper, but it's not our table. And it's not our supper. It's the Lord's table. It's the Lord's bread, the Lord's wine. And we are guests of a holy host who for whatever reason invited us to come. 
And we don't come after we're transformed. We don't go change and repent and come around and then now we're qualified to come to the table. That's not how Jesus ever worked. You come to the table and slowly as you digest the bread and as you enjoy the wine of his love in time, we all change. Every one of us. You can't stay at the table of the Lord long and not be transformed somehow. See, sometimes we've gotten it right and sometimes we've gotten it wrong. We have done immense good in the name of Jesus. We have started hospitals and hospices, homeless shelters. We've created programs that feed people and educate people and free people. We've created systems of justice around the world. There have been times when we were for the thing he would have been for. And there were times under the same name, we got it wrong. And in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, we, we marched in conquests and crusades. We, in the name of Jesus, hosted holy wars and holocausts. We founded and funded Immense systems of oppression, slavery, segregation, Jim Crow, scandals of every variety, all under the banner of his name. How does that happen? I, I think it happens this way. When we take all of the ethics of the culture around us and blur them with the, excess, the, the, uh, the ethics of Jesus, they begin to blur into some kind of oblivion to the point where I don't know what was coming from Jesus and I don't know what was coming from the world around me. So in the fourth century, Constantine decides to make Christianity the empire's religion. For the first 300 years, it was shaky to be a Christian. You, first of all, you couldn't own land, you couldn't own a business, you couldn't run for office. You couldn't do many things if you were a Christian. In fact, you had a target on your back in most places and could martyr, your, you could die for being a Christian. And then quite politically expeditious was his decision to unify the entire empire with one religion. And as he did, something interesting happened. Within a few short years, Christians went from being a persecuted people to those who were in power. Now, it wasn't just legal to be a Christian, but it was lucrative. Now you couldn't own property or a business or run for office unless you were a Christian. Interesting how we sometimes blur the ethic of empire and the call of Christ. And when we mix the two, there's something strange that happens. You know, when we mix church and state, it's been said before, it's like mixing Manure and ice cream. It doesn't change the manure much, but the ice cream sure tastes different. Come, right? The truth is, when Constantine married this radical faith that was based in the love of God and love of neighbor, when he mixed that with the political expediency of the ethics of empire, it's like baking a cake. And in the ingredients, in the bowl of the cake, are all the ethics of empire, power, 
control, domination, conquest, authority. That's the cake of empire. And you put it in the oven, you wait for it, you bring it out, you let it cool. But that's not going to go down well. So we decorate the cake of empire with the frosting of Jesus. And if we just put a little bit of something that tastes like Jesus on the outside of this imperial cake, well, it'll just be fine. You take a bite of it, it's still empire. It's still a selfish drive to get everything that you want and be in charge and in control and in power and in domination. But as long as we cover it with a little bit of Jesus frosting, it'll help the medicine go down. That's how we can march in crusade armies where a whole people once had their hearts broken for a broken world. They were for a broken world. Now Christians were against a world filled with pagan infidels. So we go into battle with the image of the cross on their shields and on their banners and slay them in the name of Jesus. How? By baking the cake of empire and frosting it with Jesus. This is how the holy wars of Europe happened. Not when we were against the unbelieving infidels, but we were against each other. Catholics and Protestants killing each other. This is how we, in the name of Jesus, the frosting on the top of the love of empire could do unimaginable horror to indigenous peoples of the Americas. And it's how that we could sponsor slavery in our own country. How Christian pulpits, in my, people in my job in the South and the North would justify America's original sin of slavery with the Bible because we bake the cake of empire, controlled domination and authority by frosting it with a little bit of sweet Jesus on top. That's how it happens. And the thing is, every one of us in this room, everyone in the FLC, everyone online today would say, yeah, boy, we got it wrong then, didn't we? Man, we were on the wrong side of history then. Whew, man, we really got it wrong. We were for the things we should have been against. We were against the things we should have been for. But the trouble is, we got to get better at recognizing it in real time. Right? In real time. Because there are some who are telling us, you're missing this. And we're like, no, no, it's Jesus and the frosting and the, it's going to be great. Just eat. Here you go. Do you see how serious this is? We can only be for and against the things which Jesus was for and against. What do you mean? So you're not going to take a stand on anything then? Wait, I thought you were supposed to be taking a stand on particular things. I take a stand. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All of the ground is sinking sand. If we lift a banner with any other words on it besides Christ the crucified, then we run the risk of being for something he was against and against something that he was for. But if we wake up daily, and I mean this, and each one of us in this church prays daily, Lord, show me. Today I will be prone, oh God, to pick up a banner that I think you want me to pick up. But if I'm off, show me. I think you want me to advocate for this and you want me to be against that. So I'm going to do it. But Lord, show me because I could get it wrong. I don't want to be for anything 
other than you. And that takes humility. It takes repentance. It takes opening our minds and hearts to the living, breathing God who is constantly course correcting us. And it takes faith. Beloved, over the years, I have quoted a hymn that I believe is more needed now than ever. Because as we move through the shifting sands of cultural change and as we turn corners that we have never been around before and we attempt to lead and love well in the name of Jesus, we hold on to this truth. The church of Christ in every age beset by change, but spirit-led, must claim and test its heritage and keep on rising from the dead. We are resurrection people. The living, breathing, risen Lord is in and among us, and it's only through a spirit of humility that we can advance the cause of Christ well. Maybe you're here today and you're, you're hearing what I'm saying and you're convicted just as I am convicted. And you yourself recognize, I, maybe I've been lifting a banner other than him. Christ said, if I'll be lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. Maybe, maybe today I need to repent and, and lay down every other banner but his. Maybe you've never confessed Christ as the Lord of your life and never articulated it that way, that he is truly the one banner under which you march. Maybe you need to pray, or even right now, like right now while we're looking at each other, in your heart, use these words, God, I'm sorry. And I need your, your grace to forgive me for making such a mess of my life. Forgive me for seeking meaning in anything other than you. I repent of my sins and I ask that you would make me new from within. And I will follow you as my Lord, wherever it is that you lead. In Jesus' name, amen.